we're going to pick up uh, what uh, we're calling uh, our series in January and into February, Fight for Joy. This is part four. And in this series, we are tackling what we've called the seven deadly or the seven daily sins. And it's coming out in some sense of that first passage that I mentioned in First Peter chapter one or chapter two, verse 11, that there are passions of the flesh which wage war against our souls, meaning that even when you are a Christian, even when you are a believer, there are still these impulses embedded in our flesh that desire to not reflect the citizenship that we have in heaven, but to reflect the citizenship that we formerly had in the world. And thus far, we've really just talked about this idea of the flesh, but whenever we fight this battle against these passions of the flesh, in some ways there are three great enemies that we are battling against. Three enemies, three axis powers that have allied themselves to keep us from doing what we desire to do and live holy lives. Sometimes theologians will call them the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is an unholy trinity of evil forces set against us to produce evil. And so in some ways, the world is this system of structures, sometimes referred to as the spirit of the air. It's what happens when you have a society of rebels with sinful desires, passions of the flesh, creating institutions, enshrining sins as virtues. The devil, maybe the father of lies, He's the one with an army of demonic powers who's in some ways orchestrating. He's the one with the blueprint to create this world that enshrines these lies. And so what would the world look like if we, over the past couple of weeks, enshrined greed? If we took greed at the personal level and brought it up to a societal level, where would the world enshrine greed? And my answer would be, well, in, in the ideas of consumerism and materialism. These are worldly ideas that our greatest joy is in earthly possessions. And so citizens who worship at the altar of greed and money will use their time and money to buy what money can buy, all of the joy that money can buy. And in doing so, they might sacrifice the environment. They might sacrifice their unborn child at the altar of greed and money, of materialism, of comfort. What might anger at an individual level look like when it is brought up into worldly structures and institutions? It may look a little like tribalism and racism, where we begin to allow our personal anger to be the influence or impetus to oppress other people groups, that we now separate into groups of people I like and people I hate, people I am happy with and people I am angry with. This morning, as we move into the next topic, I want to ask you to just imagine what might the world look like if we took the sin of lust at the individual level and had the world build systems and structures, institutions to enshrine lust? What might that world look like? Could it end up looking a little like 
images that once were reserved for behind the counter or videos once reserved for behind a windowless room, for those pictures and videos to come out of the background and into Instagram pictures and TikTok videos. Might this system of the world built on lust produce industries that would bleed us dry of money at whatever cost, no matter how much trafficking, no matter how much destruction it causes to the women in that industry? Would, would the world start to reflect that? Would we have companies and businesses consider how they might leverage the power of lust in order to get us to buy products or attract boyfriends? What are the ways that we might see lust be capitalized in this worldly process? It might be just a campaign, a propaganda campaign that would encourage and celebrate every expression of sinful desire under the banners of love and freedom and then demonize and oppress any voice that might say the latter. First John gives us this passage. It says, do not love, I might say, that world I just described. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, it is not from the Father, but from the world. We would hope that citizens of another kingdom would not live according to the systems and structures of the world. We would hope that God's citizens would take this verse and say, I will not love what the world loves. I will not enshrine what the world enshrines. It should be different among us. And so what God does is he speaks to us and he speaks to a dark world. And in a dark world, his word that is light might feel blinding to us who have sat in darkness for decades. And yet this light is like a set of headlights that give us direction moving forward. It helps us to see the curve ahead or the cliff below. It gives us an idea of danger that's coming and it gives us a picture of a better destination that we can go to. And so God would call us to get off that wide road and stop following all of the taillights that are headed to destruction and to merge into another lane, to get off into a narrower road that leads to life. And so I want to pray this morning for us that we might get off the road that leads to destruction. That even though we recognize that sin still remains, there are still impulses within our hearts that would lead us to go back into that former kingdom and live in it, that we would recognize that sin no longer reigns, that we are no longer slaves to sin. That battles that we might have fought and lost, fought and lost, fought and lost can still be won and that this morning might be a victory cry, an anthem for us to pick up our swords and to fight again this battle against lust. So would you pray with me? Father, we have turned our face to you multiple times this morning because you are the one who has the power of life and death. Lord, you are not weak 
or shorthanded in your ability to accomplish great ends. We worship you because of your power and might. And we worship you because we trust you. We trust that your plans for how you have ordered your kingdom is better than the blueprint that Satan has outlined for the kingdom of this world. I pray, Lord, that in this moment, you might shine a light into the darkness. And for those of us who have sat in darkness and might be blinded by that light, Lord, I pray that you would give them just enough to be able to see the destruction ahead and see the beauty of what could be. That you would use this morning as the day of victory for strongholds in our lives that have kept us burdened and in bondage. And so, Lord, I pray that you would lift our eyes to see and savor you, that you would fill us with your pleasures forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians uh, this morning, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, so I'd invite you to turn there. First Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. You can be following along. The writer Paul is speaking to the church in Thessalonica. It would have been a Greek uh, port city. And he says this to the church in Thessalonica. Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God as we have taught you. You live this way already and we encourage you to do so even more. For you remember what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. God's will is for you to be holy. So stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor not in lustful passions like the, like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Never cheat, never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife. For the Lord avenges all such sins as we have solemnly warned you before. God has called you to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I'm going to use an outline to guide us this morning that begins with the battle. Uh, then we'll talk about what I see in this passage as the stakes, uh, and then finally move into the weapons that we can use to battle lust. And so to, to begin, we can look at what is this battle that is going on? I believe this verse, verse 3, gives us an idea of what is happening. What are we trying to do? What, are, what would victory look like? Verse 3 says, God's will is for you to be holy. Verse 3, so stay away from all sexual sin. So, verse 4, control your body. Verse 4, so live in holiness and honor. Verse 6, don't harm or cheat another by lusting. Verse 7, don't live impure lives. This is God's will for your life. I don't know if you've ever had that moment where you're feeling, I just need God to give me a vision for what his, 
will is for my life. I don't know what I should do here or if I should go here. Well, let me try to make it simple for you because there are certain situations where God has made his will very clear for us. If there is ever a moment where you're wondering, should I remain faithful to my wife or should I seek satisfaction in the arms of another lover? God has revealed his will for you. If you are ever wondering whether you should take your relationship with your boyfriend or your girlfriend to the next level, God has revealed his will for you. If you're wondering whether you should linger on this website, if you should hover over this image, or if you should dream, fantasize of what things might be like, you don't need to pray about it. You don't need to wonder. God has revealed his will for you in this. God's will for you is to live holy lives. Now, this idea of living holy lives reminds me of kind of three stages of salvation. Because there are parts of us that recognize that the scriptures have declared the church to be holy. And what that refers to is this idea of justification. That when you put your faith in Jesus Christ at the moment of conversion, when you believed in your heart and called upon him to save you, he justified you. What that means is that he saved you. He has saved you from the penalty of your sins. You are no longer one who will be condemned for your sin because he has saved you. In God's eyes, you are positionally holy. God has made him who knew no sin to be sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. You now, as a citizen of God's kingdom, wear the robes of a righteous man because Jesus works on you not your works, Jesus' works on you is now what clothes you in righteousness. You are holy because you've been justified. But salvation has, I think, three different stages. And so I'm going to bring you to uh, the far side, which is sometimes called glorification. And glorification recognizes that there's a day coming when Jesus will save us from the presence of sin. Maybe you recognize the fact that though sin no longer reigns, it remains in your life, whether your own or those that have been done to you. The good news of the gospel means that one day all of that sin will be removed. And at that day, you will be glorified and free from the presence of sin. You can see the past. There was a moment in time where you weren't justified, but now you have been justified by faith and not by works. And you will be glorified at that moment that Jesus comes into eternity forevermore. But there's this middle stage that we call sanctification. That is the process of God saving us, that we are being saved from the power of sin. I said, though sin no longer reigns, it remains. There are still these impulses in us that sometimes overpower us and we lead ourselves back into our former life. This is a season. God's will for us is to become holy. Sanctification, this yellow phase, this is where those of you who are believers are at. If you are a believer of Jesus Christ, you have not yet arrived at glorification. You have not yet arrived at perfection. And so what we are doing in this battle is trying to move from one degree of glory to another. We are trying to become a little bit more holy, a little bit more holy. 
And to be honest, this process of sanctification is far slower than a lot of us would ever desire it to be. It takes seasons for us to get through. And your life does not look like a straight ride to heaven, but probably a wobbly, shaky roller coaster of a ride. What sanctification in some ways is like, it's like learning how to walk in God's kingdom. When you are born again, you do not come out of the spiritual womb with the ability to run uh, 4 three forty. There are stories of people who have had that come to Jesus moment and then said, and I never desired another drink again. That's rare. Rare. Praise God for that amount of progress that happens in a moment. But the story of scripture paints one of slow, gradual change from one degree of glory to another. You probably don't start off running. You probably start crawling. But that crawling is progress. And so what we want to do in this battle is to slowly but surely become more and more like Jesus. And so we want to take all of our life, we want to figure out how do we bring our money, bring our power, bring our relationships, bring our parenting, bring our malehood and femalehood, bring every area of our life into alignment. Galatians 2.14 would say, to bring all of these things in line with the truth of the gospel so that we might see all things in in light of the gospel. When it comes to sexuality, we want to bring God's design for sexuality and walk in that line. We want to walk along that path, that narrow road that God has provided for us. That's what it means for us to fight. We are fighting the battle for sanctification to become more and more like Christ in every area, including sexuality. And I'll mention here, because I think this is where the church can sometimes get things a bit twisted, is to say that not all sexual desire is sin. Not all sexual desire is sin. In fact, the flesh often takes good things and twists them in some ways to make them bad. Money is not inherently evil, but the excessive, inordinate desire for money is what turns money into greed. Justice is not bad, but a warped view of justice is what's going to lead us to the sin of anger. Sexual desire, in the same way, is not bad. God created it as a good thing, but this good thing can be perverted. It can be twisted in ways that go outside of God's design. I might compare it to something like fire. Fire, we know, is not necessarily inherently wrong, even though it can burn us. But even though it can burn us, a lot of us have brought fire into our homes, even though it can burn the whole place down. But we we take that fire and we put it in its place. We might call that a fireplace. And as long as fire is in the fireplace, it is achieving the design for what fire can provide. But if one of those sparks leaves its place, it can set your whole house on fire, not because fire's bad, but because it's not been kept in its place. And I think one of the things the church has done is it's tried to demonize sexual desire and say that all sexual desire is wrong. It's filthy, nasty, and gross. So just save it for the ones you love. And God's saying, no, sexual desire is not filthy, nasty, and gross. It's a good thing. 
And when we as church folks or we as parents try to divert our children away from the dangers of lust by saying that sexual desire is wrong, it's kind of like what parents do when they don't want their kids to eat any ice cream. I'm looking forward to June. In June, Lord willing, I'll have a son or a daughter and uh, that kid will grow up and I'm I'm wondering what kind of lies I'm going to end up telling my kids just to get what I want. And if my son comes to me and says, Brandon, can I have some of your ice cream? There's, there's a temptation for me to say, no, you won't like it. Why? It's spicy. You won't like it. It's spicy. But to, to call good things bad for the sake of avoiding the evils of lust is dishonoring to God. When, when God has given us his word regarding sexuality, he's given us two paths. Holy sexuality has two paths, and both of these paths are honorable paths. They are satisfying paths. These are paths that it is good for us to walk on, whether you're in one or the other. One path would be married and monogamous. The other path, single and celibate. This is what holy sexuality looks like in God's eyes. Married and monogamous, Single and celibate. Sam Alberry is a pastor. I believe he's in the UK somewhere. But he helps us see the, the beauties of both of these sexualities when he gives this quote. He says, If marriage, married and monogamous, shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel. Meaning that marriage, as God has created between one man, one woman, for a lifelong covenant is meant to provide us with a shape, to give us an idea of what does the gospel look like. Because in marriage and in the gospel, what we have is two people coming together who are fully open with each other. They are fully exposed to one another. They are naked and unashamed. In the gospel, Jesus Christ knows our hearts fully and loves us completely. And in marriage, the design for that lifelong covenant is to be fully known and fully loved. And when we can model that kind of marriage to the world, we are letting them know a picture of the gospel, a shape of the gospel. But in singleness, we don't necessarily show the shape, but the sufficiency. And what that means is that our sexual identity as single men or single women is not rooted in our sexual identity. Our identity is rooted in our citizenship as God's citizens, in God's kingdom, more than it is our sexual identity. The gospel supplies its sufficiency to show that despite the fact that we may never experience the pleasures of sex, God has not withheld any good thing for us. The gospel is such good news of great joy that when we look back on our days of singleness, perhaps deprived of sex for 10, 20, 80 years, we will look back on that and say, I didn't miss anything. The gospel is such good news that we would look back on not having what the world might consider to be the greatest of pleasures and say, that was nothing. That's small. When we believe that as single men and women and live celibate lives, we are revealing the sufficiency of the good news, letting people know that the gospel is good news of great joy for all people. What lust does, lust short changes God and short circuits love. Maybe you saw the two words that uh, Paul used in Philippians. 
to contrast a passion of lust with holiness and honor. I believe that lust is being described in a way that shortchanges God or dishonors God, I might say. What lust does is it mocks God by saying, God, your way of sexual expression is not right. It whispers in some sense like the garden, like in the garden and says, you surely won't die. It's surely not wrong for you to do this. Just take, just eat. God is trying to keep something good from you. And when we act out in lust, we are essentially saying, God, your plan is dumb. You are a fool. Real love and real freedom comes from expressing my sexuality in whatever way I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want. And that's why I believe it shortchanges God. It says, God, you don't know what you're doing. You're not really that wise. You're not really that loving. You're not really that smart. But lust also short circuits genuine love because what lust does, it says, I don't really love you. I don't really love all of you. I I just kind of love your body. It turns people into objects that we try to take things from as long as they serve us which is not what love is. Love is being able to joyfully give ourselves, even at great cost, because we find someone to be beautiful, not just useful. And lust says, I'm going to use you until you're not worth anything to me anymore. Lust says, I'm not going to give you my whole self. I'm not going to become fully known to you. I'm only going to give you my body. And I'm going to withhold. That's why sexual expression outside marriage is so dangerous. If you really were to expose yourself in that kind of context without the framework of marriage, someone might see everything about you and turn away from you. And that's not what happens in the gospel. In the gospel, Jesus sees all of us and loves us fully. So with lust, kind of the the battle lines being drawn, I want to move into what are the stakes? What's What could be lost here in this battle? Verse 6 in Thessalonians, um, 1 Thessalonians 4. It says, Never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife. And here I think where Paul gives us the stakes. What's at stake if we don't do what God has told us to do? To walk in holiness, walk in purity. Paul says, for the Lord avenges all such sins as we have solemnly warned you before. The world would have us say that lust is a victimless crime. No one, no one gets hurt with a glance. And God says, it's not victimless. I will avenge such injustice. Perhaps uh, Jesus' words will hit us a little bit more powerfully as we read uh, the continuation of last week's message in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 27 to 30, Jesus helps us with that framework. You've heard it said, but I'll say to you, and here he says, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you, better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. Lust is the kind of offense that deserves punishment. And so we can't continue to disregard God's design for sexual desire and still claim that we love him. We can't genuinely love God and not be battling against this offense of lust. Jesus is saying it's a big deal. It's the kind of deal that you should make significant sacrifice to win that battle. Verse 29, maybe you can look at it. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out. If your right arm causes you to sin, cut it off. And I don't think that Jesus is literally talking about plucking out your own eye or cutting off your own arm. Why? Uh, Well, because you have two of them. And if you lose one, you still have the other that can be an instrument of lust. What I think he's trying to get us to, to see is that there is no sacrifice too great when the stakes are this great. If the stakes are high enough, no sacrifice is too great. You think, well, losing an eye, that would be bad. Losing an arm, that would be bad. Jesus says it would be worse if you lost the battle and never fought the battle on lust and found yourself in eternal damnation because of it, separated from God and his design forever. Losing an arm, losing an eye, that's small. Not having a cell phone, not having a social media account, not having access to the internet, that's small. Yeah, you would, you would not have all of the opportunities to do everything that everyone else is doing, but that would be a small sacrifice if it helped you to win the battle on lust. Not being able to have conversations with people about your favorite HBO show, that's small. You're just saying that's small. It would be a small sacrifice compared to what's at stake. And so I want to ask us, what would, what would be the sacrifice that we would need to make to win the battle on lust? Maybe you just don't know what is at stake and so you're not willing to make the sacrifice. On a Saturday, April 3rd, April 26th, 2003, Aaron Ralston went out uh, in his Utah uh, neighborhood to go uh, rock climbing and mountain biking for the day in the canyons of Utah. Six days later, on that Thursday, he walked out missing an arm. And some of you know the story, because while he was rock climbing, a boulder fell and pinned his arm against the canyon wall. And for 127 hours, he was pinned to that wall. He tried everything to get the boulder off, but it could not be budged. And so just before dehydration and exhaustion took his own life, he decided to sacrifice his own arm. And so with his small pocket knife, he cut off his arm, recognizing that he'd go the rest of his life without an arm, recognizing that he'd have to endure the pain of severing his own arm. And he went out and went to the hospital. And Aaron is now alive and well. I doubt Aaron would have ever considered cutting off his own arm unless the stakes were high enough. The only reason he had the strength to take what was important to him and cast it aside is because he found something better. He knew he wanted to live. Now, for us in our battle, what weapons do we have? 
We have something better than a pocket knife. The scriptures would have us look at this passage, First, um, First Corinthians six eighteen, and First Corinthians ten fourteen. There are some strategies that the Bible provides for us. If you read them here, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry, flee from sexual immorality. I might go on. So flee youthful passions. So as for you, O man, flee these things. One of the strategies that the scriptures provide for us to win a battle is sometimes just to run away, to flee. Maybe you've heard of flight or fright. There's actually a third in there, flight, fright, or freeze. What we want to avoid is just freezing and not moving. And so the scriptures do give us reason to flee. If I had a snake, and I was one of those preachers who had snakes on the platform, I'm not, but if I did, and I threw a snake, I'm guessing we would see people in the pews run because they recognize they don't like snakes. Snakes can something, if I know if I said it, it's a venomous snake, then everyone's definitely scattering. Why? We recognize the danger. It's wise for us to run when we recognize danger. We don't want to get down and there might be some weird freak in here who likes snakes and who would want to pet it and tame it and get, see how close it can get to it before it bites it. But I wouldn't say that's a wise man. The same is true with sin. If lust really is as dangerous as we're describing it, then fleeing really is a great strategy. For us to avoid situations where we might be tempted to lust, running away from that might be good. Just like Joseph ran away from Potiphar's wife when he was tempted by sexual desire. Fleeing might be good. I don't know that it's really the best strategy though. Oftentimes, these strategies are rooted in our own willpower. And so you might have a strategy of, well, I, I'm going to just install a computer filter on my computer. I'm just going to find an accountability partner. I'm just not going to visit those places. And I think that it, it, it neglects the fact that this battle is not a fleshly battle, but a spiritual battle. It's not just a behavior problem, but a spiritual or worship problem. And so if we just try to fight lust by always fleeing and never fighting and never really bringing the proper weapons to our fight, I think we end up losing this battle. One of the things I want to draw out in this season is to say that we are sanctified by faith, not flesh. In this yellow phase where we move from justified to glorified, we are sanctified by faith, not by flesh, meaning that your willpower is not strong enough to win the battle. I want to ask in some ways, who do you think you are to win a battle against lust, this demonic power in the world? Do you not know the great men who have fallen by the allure of sexual desire? Do you not know the power of the prince of the power of darkness that is in the world and trying to steal you away from God's kingdom? Galatians would go even farther and perhaps get more angry. And Paul would say to the church in Galatia, oh, foolish Galatians. I would imagine that if Paul looked at me, he'd say, oh, you fool. Brandon, you fool. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. 
Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul is saying, you were saved and justified by faith and you will be sanctified by faith. If you think that your flesh, your sinful flesh has the power to defeat sinful flesh, you're a fool. You need the spirit to be able to give you the power that your flesh does not have the power to achieve. And so maybe I'll grant that you can think of fleshly desires that might lead you away from lust. I'll admit, like fear is a real powerful motivator. If, if you considered maybe the fear of hell and the only thing that kept you out from lust was fear of hell, that could be powerful. Maybe because your love in this world is comfort or love is your family or love is your reputation. The threat of losing your family or your job or your reputation by lust might give you reason to avoid lust. Because you know, if you get caught in this trap, this thirst trap, you might lose your wife and you love your wife. You might lose your kids. You love your kids. And so I grant that there are some ways that fear can be a powerful motivator, but oftentimes it's just replacing one idol for another. We use our idolatry of comfort or idolatry of our families to in some ways steer us away from sin. And when Jesus is saying, no, you need to flee from all idolatry. And so what I want to say is that what we need to be motivated by is joy. And this is, this is now going to be applied just to lust, but I would say that you can apply this to any one of our sins that we'll cover over these seven weeks. We are motivated by joy. I'm going to show you a uh, section of scripture from Thomas Chalmers. He wrote in the early 1800s, and if, if you've watched the television show Poldark, you know sometimes the people in that era spoke a little weird, and so I'm going to try to show you, and then I'll try to, to show you in a different way. Um, but Thomas Chalmers writes this. He says, the only way that we are going to dislodge the affections of sin is by replacing it with a superior satisfaction. He writes, even the strongest resolve, even the strongest willpower is not enough to dislodge an affection by leaving a void. There are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart its love for the world. One, either by a demonstration of the world's vanity so that the heart shall be prevailed upon simply to withdraw its regard from an object that is not worthy of it. Or two, by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment. So the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign to an old affection, which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange it for a new one. What he's saying is, is that the only way to get rid of one desire is to replace it with a better one. And he says, how would I get the air out of this? How am I going to get the air out of this fishbowl? I can't dump it out. I, I can't scoop it out. As soon as I try to suck it out, air, it's a vacuum. Nature loves to fill a vacuum. And so really it might be a, a puzzle. How do you get rid of all of the air that's in there? I'll show you. You fill it with something weightier. 
And all of a sudden, this glass that was full of air is now maybe half full of air. But you don't stop. You keep filling that thing. And if you fill it, and you fill it again, eventually you remove all of the air out of that heart. Your heart won't desire lust if you filled it with something better. There's no way that air can get back in there. Now, truth be told, your heart can tip. You are, in some ways, a leaky fishbowl. If you have successfully filled your heart with God, which would keep lust out, you might find yourself successful one day and failing the next. It's because you got to keep filling your heart back up. John Piper would say it like this. I think he says it easier than what Thomas Chalmers, but I love Thomas Chalmers' example. Piper says, the most effective way to kill our own sin is by the power of a superior pleasure. No one sins out of duty. We sin because it is more pleasant or less painful than the way of righteousness. So bondage to sin is broken by a stronger attraction, a more compelling joy. I'm going to conclude by saying what I believe is the most powerful weapon for us against lust and the whole host of seven deadly daily sins. Paul hints at it here when he says that what is the pagan world like? Why are they filled with passions of lust? Is it not because they don't know God in his ways? They don't know God in his ways. Somehow saying if they did, they wouldn't be passionate in lust. We see that theme run throughout the New Testament. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires. Deceitful, there are certain lies that if you knew the truth would not allow you to be corrupted. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. If you weren't an ignorant fool and if you knew the truth, you would not be tempted by lust which leads me to say the battle against lust is won by knowing the truth of God. The battle against lust is won by the truth of knowing God. And you might be saying, Brandon, I know God and I am losing my battle against lust. And all I want to say is, do you? Do you know? Or is your bowl only half full? Do you not know the depth of God's power? That he speaks into the darkness, let there be light and there's light. That he says to a dead man, Lazarus, come forth and a dead man rises. Do you not, do you know, do you know the depth of the power of God? Do you know the depth of his wisdom? That there is no one who can judge his counsel, that his judgments are inscrutable. Do you know his providence? That he manages everything in the entire world that there's not a bird that falls from the sky without God knowing it? Do you know something about his power, his patience? Do you know something about his faithfulness that his mercies are new every morning? Do you weep when you read songs about the cross? Do you weep when you recognize what it cost Christ to save us? Do you know the depth of his love? Our goal is to know the depth of the truth of God and to pray towards that end, to ask the Spirit, Spirit, open my eyes to see the supreme satisfaction that only comes to us in Christ. Fill us, help us to know and see and savor Jesus above anything else this world might tempt us with. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask for your power to be displayed in and through us. 
Lord, we confess that in our ignorance, in our foolishness, we are tempted to find satisfaction outside of your design, to allow good things to burn outside of the lane that you have placed them in. And Father, I pray that you would help us to see the destruction that it can cause. But I pray more that you would show us how small its pleasure actually is. Lord, help us here as we sing to sing with good news of great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.